Are we awake? Are we lively? I don't believe you. Okay, uh, so we're in week four of a series that we've been calling Isn't She Lovely? We're going to be talking about the church. Uh, in a few months, we'll do a series where we'll talk about all of the problems with the church. It will be encouraging and heartwarming. Uh, but right now, we want to talk about what is the church at its best. When the church really looks like Jesus hoped the church would look like, what does it look like? And in that case, when the church really looks like Jesus hoped she would look like, she is lovely. And so that's kind of what we've been focusing on this series. Uh, before we jump in today to our text, I want to just remind you or let you know maybe for the first time, I can't remember if we've announced this before, we're doing baptisms on Easter Sunday. If you've been thinking about getting baptized maybe for the last few weeks or the few months about just showing the world that you have uh, given your life to Jesus, we would love for you to participate in our baptisms on Easter Sunday. Uh, three great reasons to do it that day. First of all, uh, it's a day that your friends and family are likely to agree to come. So even if you have people in your life, they're not like church people. Uh, Easter is kind of a cultural understanding. It's like a cultural celebration. And so they might come with you that day and that would be great. Second, it's a great way for you to announce to your whole church that you've chosen to orient your life around Jesus and have them celebrate that with you. That's a very exciting thing. And then finally, that's Easter Sunday. We'll have a lot of people here who like aren't in church that often, and you'll get to kind of stand up as an example of the kind of work that God can do in someone's life. Like you get to show that for them. So I think it's a beautiful day to get baptized. So that'll be Easter Sunday. If you're interested in getting baptized then, uh, let us know. You can sign up on our website and we'd be really happy uh, to move that forward. The last several weeks, we've looked at the church and uh, we've looked at the different aspects of it when it's at its best. And so I'm going to quickly run down, but it's going to be quick because we don't have time to, 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 to do this for long. But week one, we said at its best, the church is the context for spiritual formation, that Jesus has invited us into a whole way of life, that, that we reorient our entire life around him. It's not just a one-time decision or prayer or raising a hand, like it's a whole way of life. And so at its best, the church ends up being the context for that way of life, the context for our spiritual formation in Jesus. We too, we said that the mission of the church is to diligently live out the great commission and the great commandment. That Jesus called the church to share the gospel with the entire world. On the one hand, that's the great commission. And then he told us that the great commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God and love people. And the church is to do both of those things. So we're to announce the gospel, but we're to do it in love, that the church's mission is really to fulfill both of those things. Last week, Audrey told us that the church sits poised to address both physical and spiritual needs with radical generosity. Since the very beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2, the church has chosen to willfully give up some of what it owns, some of the money that it has in order to make the lives of those around it better, in order to help them hear the gospel, in order to help them get the food and the clothing and the shelter that they need. And this radical generosity when the church has been at its best is one of the things that has made it so lovely. Today, we're going to take a slightly different turn, and we are going to, the title of today's message is A Future-Oriented Community. A future-oriented community. That's what the church is. Last week we talked about a generous community. This week, a future-oriented community. Now, what I mean by that is that creation is headed somewhere. We're on a trajectory. God is working to do something. And because of that, he is looking to where this is all headed. We should be looking to where this is all headed as well. What I don't mean by that is that we should become obsessed with the end times and make a bunch of charts and graphs and try to figure out when that's happening. I thought actually about taking 10 minutes to talk about how problematic that's become specifically in the United States, but I decided, first of all, I needed more than 10 minutes, and secondly, I didn't have an extra even 10 minutes of sermon time today to do that. So I will, in the future, not too long, a few months from now, uh, we're, we're doing a Q&A kind of series, and, and this is one of the questions I get asked about a lot. I will talk about why we shouldn't get all hung up in that. I know some churches do and some Christians do, but I don't think it's the most helpful thing. When I say future-oriented, I mean looking to the future to accomplish what God is wanting to accomplish in the world. 
That's the purpose of the church. So here's where I want to begin with this statement. Where you start and end the story determines the kind of story you are telling. Where you start and end the story determines the kind of story you are telling. For instance, do I have any Star Wars fans? Just raise your hands. Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. More of you than in last hour. Last hour was full of weirdos. This hour, so glad that we have some Star Wars fans in the house. Okay, so uh, if, if I were to ask you, who is Luke Skywalker? Well, that would very much depend on where you started and stopped the story of Luke Skywalker. So if you were uh, a person who watched that original trilogy, right, that started with A New Hope, if I said, who is Luke Skywalker? You could say, well, he's a young man who had this gift of being able to tap into the force and therefore was able to be trained as a Jedi. And he rose up and he kept the empire from you know, destroying uh, the, the galaxy. That, you could say that's who Luke Skywalker is. But my kids are, are eight and 11 years old. They've only seen the most recent trilogy. Don't judge me. Well, they'll watch the others eventually, okay? But we just got to start them somewhere. And so if I were to ask them who Luke Skywalker is, they would say, well, he's a crotchety old man who made mistakes and eventually decided to sacrifice himself in order to aid the resistance, right? They probably wouldn't use all those words, but that's the, the gist of what they would say, all right? Well, who is Luke Skywalker? Well, he's both of these things. Because where you start the story and where you end the story determines the kind of story that you're telling. And so if you understand his entire trajectory, you understand something of him. Now, the problem that we've had in the U.S., is that in the U.S. we've had this version of the gospel, right? The, the church has been charged with the Great Commission to share the gospel with others. But the version of the gospel that we have often told, I think, doesn't start and end the story in the right place. So I, we've brought this up in other weeks, but just to, to remind you, the American gospel goes something like this. You're a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. Now, again, there's some truth in here, so it's not like all wrong, but it's way, way incomplete, and it can come off as strange. So you're a sinner going to hell. We've talked about how whenever Jesus talks about hell, he talks about it as destruction, as the end of existence. Like you've taken yourself out of the, the place of God, your life source, and therefore you will cease to be. A lot of times when we hear people talk about hell, they talk about it as like God's eternal torture chamber. And I've been asked for a few, uh, by a few of you, can we do more on that? We absolutely can, not today. I've given myself all kinds of homework assignments as we've gone through this series. We'll come back to this concept, but uh, for, I just want you to know that there's different ways of thinking about hell. But uh, understand when you're presenting this version of the gospel to somebody, how it can come across. You are a sinner going to hell, but God loves you. Like that's a weird, even that jump, right? You're starting in one place, going to the next. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. The problem is the American gospel starts too late and it ends too soon. The American gospel starts too late and it ends too soon. And where you start the story and end the story determines the kind of story you're telling. Uh, a few years ago, my parents both live in Texas. My mom visited uh, me and my wife and my, and my boys, uh, and she stayed with us for a few days. And one of those days, Emily was uh, working on laundry. And so my mom helped her do uh, folding some of the laundry. And Emily, uh, my mom really liked the way that Emily folded my underwear. I don't know why it's so special, but she thought it was great. So she went back home to Texas, and she decided to start folding my dad's underwear the same way that Emily was folding our underwear here, okay? And I would love to show you a demonstration on what makes it so good. I don't know. Okay, so, so my mom did that, and she put all the, and then a few days after she did that, my dad called out from the bedroom. She was getting ready in the bathroom. My dad called out, Betty Joe, are you doing something different with my underwear? And she said, yeah, I started folding it differently. He said, oh my goodness, I put it on backwards three days in a row. I thought I was having a stroke. 
All right, so that story, right? If you don't know that she learned a different way to fold the underwear from, from my wife, then my dad calling that out, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why? Because where you end, start the story, how you end the story, like it makes sense of the story. And the problem with the American gospel is that it starts too late and it ends too soon. So the rest of what I want to share with you today really is the totality of the gospel story that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of the church, you've been invited into. The best I ever heard this presented was back in 2009, I went to a conference with some other pastors called Poets, Prophets, and Preachers. And much of what I will share with you today is what I learned that day. I've never found a better way to, to talk about it. I've read lots of other ways. Dallas Willard does great, N.T. Wright, Tim Keller. But, but this is some of what they talked about that day, and it's been very helpful for me ever since. So credit where credit is due. But I want to give you the whole story, the full story, and I'd like to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the first chapter of Genesis. It's a good name for it, the number one. And it's, it's the first chapter. It's where the Bible starts. So maybe it's where we should start too. And in Genesis chapter one, the story of all of us starts with a good God creating the universe out of love. And the pinnacle of that story is his creation of human beings. And in that story, that epic poem that starts off the Bible, we read this in Genesis 1:27. So God created human beings in his own image. He didn't create any other animals in his own image. He created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So not, not only did, did he bless them, but he told them to reign over the stuff that he gave them, right? Like he goes on, then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. So from the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, creation is headed somewhere. God didn't just make a garden and tell people, keep the garden exactly like it is. No, he made trees and plants and grass that had seeds that could make more trees and plants and grass. And he made people who could create more people. So creation is headed somewhere. It starts in a place, but there's a generativity to it. It generates more of itself. And the humans are supposed to steward this and care for it and make it better and better and better. And God sees all of that and he says, that is very good that's where the story starts. So just a few observations about this. First of all, we see that God's shalom is on display. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace. And it means more than just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of the goodness and the love of God. So some of you have experienced shalom in this life. You've experienced like God's perfect peace at some point. You know that that has a feel to it. That's, that's what blankets the earth. At the beginning of this story, God's shalom. Uh, secondly, God has blessed it, right? He gives it its, his blessing. He says, this is good, and he blesses it, and he wants more of it. Third, we see that the soil and the spirit are united. There's not this idea in Genesis 1 that we have like human flesh and blood and sweat and sex and soil and dirt and all that on one hand. And then on the other hand, there's a spiritual world that's all lovely and beautiful. And this is like bad, and this is physical, and this is, and this is lovely, and this is spiritual. Like there's nothing of that. Everything is all united together, which means everything is spiritual. There's a uniting of that, and there's, there's no separation of it in the beginning. The heaven and earth are one, which means there isn't somewhere else. In fact, we find in Genesis 1 and 2 that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, that he is present with his creation, that they are living together in one perfect place in God's perfect peace and shalom. So Adam and Eve are not sitting under a tree somewhere 
uh, under the tree of life, complaining about how horrible the world is and how this next election is going to be terrible. And maybe some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. They're not hoping for that. Why? Because it's all here. Everything they want, everything they desire, all of their needs, it's all right here. And that's the beauty of it. In fact, everything you want, everything you desire, everything you need is also, like its primal impulse is found in Genesis 1 and 2. Like whatever you love about life can be found here. You're the kind of person who loves, like, well, let's be super on the nose about it. You love gardening, right? Some of you, some of you have told me about how much you love landscaping your backyards, right? And we're in Southern California, so your backyard is roughly the size of this glass of vase. But you love gardening that thing, right? You go out there and you toil it and you work it. And you, some of you have re-landscaped your backyard three times already this year. It's February. You just love getting your hands in it. You love planting new seeds. You love seeing what'll take and what won't. You love the like little gr- green ring that gets around your sneakers when you're working out there. You love the smell of your sweat mixed in with the soil. You are strange to your friends, but you love it. Of course. Of course you do. That primal impulse comes from the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1 and 2. Of course you love gardening. Some of you love creating things. You love art. You love music. I just talked to one of our students. She's, she's like in fifth grade who just said that she spent this last week on her break writing three different novels. And I said, yes. Like some of you just love creating things, right? You just love that. Why? Well, of course you do. Like you are the son or daughter of the creator. That primal impulse comes like that was placed inside of you. Of course, you love. some of you love exploration. You love getting out and learning new things, trying new things, discovering new things. Some of you love a strategy. You love like trying to, what's the best way to do this? How can we be most efficient? Right? Some of you love being outside. You love surfing or you love skiing or snowboarding or you love camping or you, you just love hiking. Like you just love it. Of course you do. Of course you do. And some of you like weird stuff, you know? Somebody asks, like, hey, what, 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 where is your spirit most alive? None of you are like, my spirit is most alive when I do email, right? I write 30 emails a day and then I'm like, oh, I can feel his pleasure in my, in my hair. Like, that is not how that goes, right? Like, like, but some of you, 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 love, you love the kind of stuff that everybody loves. Some of you love, like, I just love playing the triangle. I don't know. I just love it. It's just like, okay, well, God loves everybody. So, um, like, whatever it is that you enjoy creating, participating in, that, that initial primal impulse you will find in Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because this is where the story starts. The story starts here. Like, literally here on this planet in relationship to God, the story starts here. That's the beginning of the story. Now let's zoom to the end. The story starts in Genesis 1 and 2, and the story concludes in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22. And we read this in Revelation 21. Uh, John of Patmos is writing, and he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Keep in mind, he's writing in highly metaphorical language here. The sea being gone. Uh, first century, Middle Eastern people were often afraid of the sea. So he's saying that basically all the fear has been taken away. If you love the ocean, you're like, heaven doesn't have an ocean. It's not being literal here in Australia, okay? So just follow his logic here. But what he is saying that's helpful to know is like there's a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, it's not that like this whole idea of heaven and earth, this earth has been tossed away. God has renewed it and restored it, perfected it. And what we have now is not wasted. It gets reformed and reshaped and reamalgamated, and we continue to be here. Here. He goes on. 
I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This important phrase that God's home is now among his people. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, the story the Bible tells, Old and New Testament alike, is about God creating a world in which he intends to come and live with his human creatures. Like this is where the Bible starts. This is where the Bible ends. This is where the story starts. This is where the story ends, right? So just a few observations about this. No more death. Death is done away with. It's disposed of. There's something about what Jesus does that absolutely defeats death. There's a river of the water of life that flows within this new city that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, right? As opposed to having the presence of death, we actually have the presence of life represented in this water. Uh, there's a city. And what is a city? A city, right? We start off in Genesis 1 and 2 with a garden. A city is a collection of carefully curated gardens, so even if you only had Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, there would still be a trajectory, there would still be a destination where you start with a garden and you end with a city. In other words, if you were to take all the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, like if you don't have sin, if you don't have fallenness, you can just pull all the rest of that out and you have, you're left with a pamphlet, but there's still movement in the pamphlet, right? You move from just a garden to a whole city full of gardens. That is the movement. Oh, and then Jesus raises from the dead and Mary confuses him for a gardener, hmm? right? Like it's all in the story, okay? It's there everywhere. So there's a city, collection of gardens. There's a tree of life. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. And this tree of life makes its reappearance in Revelation 21 and 22. And then there's the healing of the nations. In other words, all of the things that have gone wrong with the world get fixed and settled at the end. In fact, in 21.5, God says, I am making everything new. And the action is not somewhere else. The action is not in some disembodied plane called heaven. The action is not in some clouds where we're all playing harps and singing. No, the story ends here. The story starts here, and the story ends here. It ends here. In Genesis 3, then, let's talk a little bit about the in-between, right? We look at the beginning, we look at the end. What about the middle? Well, the middle starts with Genesis chapter 3. It starts with the failure of human beings. We read this in Genesis 3, 6 through 7. It's talking about Eve. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is the first place in the scripture where human beings feel shame. And man, have we become familiar with that ever since. Shame is that feeling that like you're not enough, that you don't measure up. Shame is that feeling like, like when you start to think that like, you know, maybe, maybe other people, maybe I'm not enough for other people. Maybe I didn't do as well as I thought I would. Or I'm 42 years old and I'm going to go play basketball with the guys and I think I can still do that spin move that I did when I was 24, but it turns out I can't. Shame. It's that feeling. It starts very young. Uh, my youngest, William, is eight years old. And just this last week, he got in the car. He was very upset uh, after school. And I asked him what was wrong. And he was out on the playground and he was uh, playing, and he bent over at one point. I guess his shirt came up a little bit, and the people saw the top of his underwear, Super Mario Brothers underwear, 
which is fine. In eight, when you're eight years old, everybody loves Super Mario Brothers underwear. And we know for a fact his, uh, his underwear previously had been very well folded, okay? So he, he bent over, somebody saw the top of his underwear, and they laughed at him, they pointed and they said, ah, I can see your underwear. And then some other kids looked, and they're like, oh, you saw his underwear, and they laughed at him. And the way he told the story was, some kids saw me, like the top of my underwear, and then they laughed, and they told some other kids, and they laughed, and they told some other kids, and they laughed, and like the whole school was laughing. I said, you remember 700 people who go to your school? Yeah, they were all laughing. Like, no, they weren't. But at eight, it really feels like they are. There's a shame that an eight-year-old feels. And there's a shame that a 38-year-old feels. And they're different. And they're the same. We always like, am I enough? Like, that's the question we're always asking. We're asking of our friends, we're asking it of our coworkers, we're asking of our boss, we're asking of our spouse, am I enough? And this is the first time in the Bible we see this question, am I enough? The shame starts to enter in. Why? Because they turned their back on the most life-giving relationship they could ever possibly have in disobedience to God. So a few things that we see from this particular story then. First, there's the disruption of shalom. They were living in perfect peace. And there's a disruption of God's perfect peace. Like, it's, it's over. Second, another thing that happens, this is, these are really just definitions of what sin is. There's rebellion against God. There's a hierarchy, right? Where God says, like, look, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create you people. And you need to remember who I am, that I need to be at the top of the pecking order here. Your, your life will be most fulfilling when you orient it around me. And then I'm going to put you over creation. And so, so you are to steward and take care of creation. Here is the hierarchy. But there's a, when there's a rebellion against that hierarchy, when we say, like, no, God, actually, you're in my seat, then we start to see our lives unravel. So there's rebellion against God is what we see here. We also see participation in death, right? Anything that's not life is a participation in death. And when you are moving away from your creator, when you are moving away from your source of life, you are moving naturally toward death. And so that's what they do, these first people. And then there's missing the mark. The Greek New Testament word for this is hamartia, just literally to miss the mark. There's a mark you were supposed to hit, and you missed it. And because you missed it, it broke peace and broke relationship and broke hierarchy. And that's what they do. That's what sin is. But here's the good thing. Genesis 3 is not how the story begins. And Genesis 3 is not how the story ends. So yes, it is appropriate. And when we're talking about the gospel, it is appropriate to talk about sin and fallenness as an element of the story. But it's not how the story begins, and it's not how the story ends. And when you start to understand that, you allow the Genesis 3 narrative to take its proper place within the story. The American gospel starts too late, and it ends too soon. The American gospel starts with Genesis 3, and it ends with going to heaven, but that's not actually the story we find in the scriptures. It's a part of it, but it's not all of it. So what is the story? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. If you start with Genesis chapter 3, the story is about the removal of sin. But if you start with Genesis chapter 1, the story is about the restoration of shalom. Woo! That's a better story. If you start in Genesis chapter 3, the story is about what you aren't. You aren't good enough. You aren't going to make it. You aren't all that you could be. But if you start in Genesis chapter 1, the story is about what you are. You are a son or a daughter of God, and you have been invited to step into who you have always been created to be. 
If you start in Genesis chapter three, the story is about disembodied evacuation, that some glad morning when this life is over, maybe my spiritual soul will get out of here because this earth is such a hellhole. But if you start in Genesis chapter one, it's about participatory physicality, a fantastic combination of words. And what it says is that earth is moving somewhere, God is taking it on a trajectory, and you are invited to physically participate in its renewal. That's a better story. That's the story. The story is about Jesus rescuing us from our own fallenness. There's these gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the four stories of what Jesus did and what he taught and what he accomplished. My favorite one is John. I I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those guys also did a good job. I'm not putting them down. But my favorite is John, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke is kind of like, and and I'm being unfair here a little bit, but it's kind of like a just the facts, ma'am, kind of version. It tells what happened to Jesus and when it happened, and those guys rearrange stories depending on their audience and the theological points that they're trying to make. It's not that there's no poetry and no artistry to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's just that John takes that to another level. John's writing late in the first century, so these stories have already been told endlessly. They've already been written down endlessly, and now John is trying to take all of his theological knowledge and use art and poetry to convey the significance of what Jesus has done. And to do that, John relies heavily on Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 starts off like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 starts off like this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's aping, right, from that very first passage of the scripture. And he's using it to talk about Jesus as the word, the logos of God, the one who would come and right all the wrongs. Another couple of fascinating things. Anytime in the Old Testament you see numbers, you should pay attention to what they are. Not the book of numbers, although you should pay attention to that too, but the actual numbers used, because a lot of times these numbers are symbols. And when you see the number seven in the Old Testament, oftentimes it is referring back to the creation account. Why? Because that happened in seven days. God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. That number seven then often is a stand-in for the creation account. John does something really interesting with that number seven. In John chapter 2, he tells of Jesus' first miracle, and his first miracle is turning water into wine. Jesus' first miracle is to go to a wedding party where people are already sloshed and make them more wine. It's a weird first miracle. But after this miracle is performed, John tells us in John chapter 2 that that was the first sign. And then in John chapter 4, there's a Roman official that comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals his son from a distance. He says, go home, your son will be healed. And he goes home, and his son miraculously is healed. And John tells us in John chapter 4 that that was the second sign. And then after this, he stops numbering them, but he keeps telling us about different miracles. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, he multiplies the bread and the fish. In John chapter 6 as well, he walks on water. In John chapter 9, he heals a blind man and gives him his sight. And in John chapter 11, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. We started by turning water into wine, and we ended by a dead man walking out of his tomb alive. Now, John stops numbering these, but you can count on the LED screen. How many signs does John give us? Seven. Very good. You are so good at math. 
Seven is often referring to creation, and John uses it like that because then he tells the story of being of Jesus being arrested and tried and crucified. And in John chapter 20, John tells the story of Jesus raising from the dead an eighth sign, or better stated, the first day of a brand new week. Jesus is inaugurating an entirely new creation that's bursting forth right here in the midst of this old one, and it starts with his conquering of death. That's the story that we read in the Gospels. And you have to start in Genesis 1 to understand what it's getting back to. The story then is about Jesus' resurrection beginning a new creation right here in the midst of this one. The story is not just about getting you into heaven, but about getting heaven into you. The story is not just about going up there, but about heaven coming down here. The story is not just about a transaction, but about a transformation. The story is not just about what God wants to do for us, but what God wants to do in us. The story is not just about what happens when we die, but what happens if we live. The story is about anticipating the coming day when heaven and earth are one again. The story is about God renewing, restoring, and reconciling all things, and God is looking for partners. That's the gospel. And it's a really big story. And so when the church, the church is charged to share this story and live this story and deeply understand this story. And if we stop at the American gospel, unfortunately, we started too late and we ended too soon. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul, one of the very first Christians, writes to the early church and helps them understand the weight of the responsibility that they have. I love this whole chapter. It's probably my favorite of Paul's in all of his writings. In fact, in the fall, we may do a series on it. Do you see how much homework I'm giving myself? But, but this is a great chapter, but I want to pull out just a little bit of it for our time together today. In verse 19, Paul says this, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are, who are his children? It's the church. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have now chosen to sign up and be a child of God. It's who you were created to be. It's who you've chosen to fully live into. And the entire creation, Paul says, is eagerly awaiting when those people will be revealed. Why? Because against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Right? Adam and Eve made the mistake. The first people made the mistake. At some point, people fell away from God, turned their back on him, and, and all of creation then, against its will, was subjected to the curse that came from that. Right? If you're going to unplug yourself from your life source, it has an impact for you. It has an impact for the people around you. It has an impact for creation. It wasn't everyone's choice. But everyone was subjected to the curse it brought about. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. In other words, the solution to what ails the world is found in the children of God, and that is you. It's the church. You have been given a great gift of salvation and purpose and grace. And you have been given a great responsibility to not keep that for yourself, but to in turn pass that gift on to those around you. N.T. Wright says it like this. 
Humans were made to be God's agents within this world. That is part of what it means to be made in God's image. Until humans can take up this world, the world will remain unredeemed. Until you, until I, until the church will take up the role of what it means to be created in God's image, to become God's agents, the world will remain unredeemed. God wants to make a greater impact in the world than he is currently making right now because he has put this on the shoulders of his church to go forward. Thus, the resurrection of God's people is what the whole world is waiting for. We are saved not from the world, but for the world. It is not the case then. Like whenever we start to think like, oh yes, following after Jesus, that's great. It makes my life better. And, and I now have purpose and I now have fulfillment. And that is great. Of course you do. If you followed after Jesus, you have found some of that. That's amazing. And it absolutely, 100% cannot stop with you. To follow after the commands of Jesus is to fulfill his great commandment and his great commission. It's not to keep this salvific gift for ourselves, but to share it with other people. Why? Because the whole world is groaning. The whole world is straining with anticipation. The whole world is up on its tippy toes trying to see who the children of God are and how they will redeem the world. The church then carries the hope for the world's future. It's quite a responsibility we've been handed. We should definitely take it seriously. A little less than a year ago, I stood up here and talked to you a little bit about this burden that our staff and our church and many of our key leaders in, in our congregation had to reach people who are far from God in the world. And I, I, I told you that as a church, like there were some goals that we were trying to try to run after over the next few years because we, we've, we feel burdened, like we've been given uh, this unique calling here. And I think every church has a unique calling. Let me be clear about that, right? We are part of the church universal, but every church has this unique calling and gifts that it needs to steward. And we've been called to reach people with the gospel of Jesus to articulate it and to live it out in a way that not every church is called to do. So we think that we need more of us doing this more often and in more places. And so last year we talked about the fact that we were hoping to, in the next five years, a goal of ours is to acquire two additional campuses, Spur City Church, that we can start to really pour into and to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we invited you guys to be praying with us in that. And that's not just like a decision that one of us made. Like this is, this is stuff we've been wrestling with as a community for years, actually. And I don't have any new announcements to make for you this morning. We haven't acquired anything yet. We've been diligently working on all this stuff for the last year, but we will certainly let you know when that happens. But I would invite you to continue praying for it. The other thing that we decided was that we want to see over 500 people baptized in the next five years. And we had almost 100 last year, and we expect to see that over the coming years. And many of them were baptized not just because they randomly showed up on a Sunday, but because you were burdened for a friend of yours or a family member of yours. And so you invited them to come, and then they heard the gospel, and much to your surprise, they came back. And then they came back again. And some of them chose to get baptized to show like, wow, I actually think I do want to orient my life around Jesus. Thank you for doing that. Keep it up. We also want to see over a thousand people go through Rooted so that they can be disciples, so that they can not just learn about the faith of Jesus, but about living out the way of Jesus. Not just about what they believe, but who they are becoming. And we've seen hundreds go through Rooted over the last couple of years as well. And we want to see more of this. This is the particular burden that God has placed on our hearts here as a church, that we continue to reach out to others. 
But, but for many of us, we have forgotten what it's like to not know Jesus. And we've forgotten what it's like to live a life trying to get filled up by our net worth or climbing the corporate ladder or the friends we keep or the spouses we're able to attract or the dates we're able to go on. Like, like for many of us, we have forgotten what that can feel like in desperation. I actually talked after last hour to um, one of uh, Verse City Church attendees in our lobby. He's been here for several years. And Jesus has completely transformed his life in the last several years. A number of you know him. He's, he's an amazing guy. And he just, he was honest with me. And he said, look, man, I knew a bunch of Christians in business. And they never shared their faith with me. In fact, a lot of times they would even kind of like keep to themselves and sit off by themselves. Like, I just thought they were being weirdos and didn't care about me. I was not interested in whatever they had because whatever they had seemed exclusive. He said, then, then when I came to know Jesus, I was like, why do these guys not share this with me? Do they not love me? Or do they not think it was important? Like, I just don't understand. In Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, she tells a story. She, she oversaw tech teams at Google and then at Apple for years. And she tells a story about the first time she ever led a team of people. And there was a guy on her team named Bob. And Bob was a very likable guy. Bob would ask you what your favorite candy was, and then Bob carried a satchel around with everybody's favorite candy, and occasionally he would just give you a piece of your favorite candy. It is hard not to like a person like Bob. So Bob joins the team, and turns out as likable as Bob was, and as great as he was in conversation, and as much candy as he was packing around all the time, Bob wasn't doing a great job at his actual work. And everybody loved Bob, so Kim didn't want to come down on him hard and didn't want to have a fight with him and didn't want him to feel bad about himself. And so she, what she kept doing was she would take whatever work Bob gave her and she would hand it to one of the other team members and have them to get it up to par. Like, okay, can you work on this? Sorry. And, and then after a while, the team got frustrated because like, hey, Bob's not pulling his weight. We're having to stay late to take care of Bob's poor work. And she decided, okay, I've never talked to Bob about this, but I just got to let him go. I got to fire him. Like, we, we can't have this on our team. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose the whole team. So she tells this story in her book. And she says this, as I faced the prospect of losing my team, I realized I couldn't put it off any longer. I invited Bob to have coffee with me. He expected to have a nice chat, but instead, after a few false starts, I fired him. Now we were both huddled miserably over muffins and lattes. It's terrible to be huddled miserably over a muffin and a latte, isn't it? After an excruciating silence... Bob pushed his chair back, metal screeching on marble, and looked me straight in the eye. Why didn't you tell me? As that question was rolling around in my mind with no good answer, he asked me a second question. Why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. It was the low point of my career. How many of us know someone in our lives who we need to invite them in on the gospel and we just haven't? How many of us would feel terrible if years from now they came to Jesus and discovered their purpose and fulfillment in him, the mission he's called them to? And we had coffee with them and they said to us, like, man, you knew about this all along? Why didn't you tell me? I thought you cared about me. As my friend shared with me last hour, man, why, why didn't anyone tell me? These guys knew Jesus. They talked about the fact that they had faith, but they never talked to me about what that faith was.
followers of Jesus, you've been given a great gift, but it comes with a great responsibility. We dare not drop the ball. We dare not ignore it. We dare not turn our back on it. When you walked in this morning, there were neon cards on your seat and a pencil. And if you didn't see the pencil, but your rear end's been hurting for the last 30 minutes, you might want to stand up and grab it. In just a moment, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Now, listen, every week, and I'm so grateful for this, every week we have people who come and hang out at our church who aren't sure about Jesus, they're not sure about faith yet, they're checking things out. If that's you, this assignment that I'm about to give everybody is not your assignment. You can hang out, just just chill for a, for a minute, and don't feel bad about that at all, and don't feel weird about it. There are a lot of people in this room that that will be them too, okay? So just want to let you know that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you're a part of the church. It means you've been given a great gift, and it means that that gift comes with a great responsibility. In just a moment, I want you to take about a minute, and I want you to think of the name of somebody in your life that you know needs to hear the gospel from you. Maybe it's taking them to coffee and just asking them how their life is going and telling them that you will pray for them. Maybe it's inviting them to Easter services here at Verse City or to our next series. Maybe it's inviting them to be a part of your small group so they can meet some other believers and see what they're like. It could be a bunch of other things. But I'll bet there's a name of someone in your life, someone you work with, someone you're married to, one of your kids, one of your family members, your friends, someone in your, one of your classmates. I'll bet there's the name of somebody in your life that if you'll think about it, pray about it for just a moment, you'll feel like, mm, I need to share with this person. And so I would just ask you over the next minute to take some time and write their first name on that card, just their first name. I'll give you about a minute. In just a moment, I just want to pray for every name on every card. And when I do that, if you're comfortable with it, I would love for you to just hold your card up and point the name toward the stage. If you're worried about privacy, I'm not really going to be able to read it. These lights are like I have four freight trains in my face, okay? But it's more symbolic of saying like, hey, we're lifting this person up together right now. And so I'd love to pray for those cards. And if you're comfortable, if you would just hold them up as we pray. Would you pray along with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for each name on each card in this room. I know that each of these cards represent a human soul, a, a physical, spiritual being who you made and who you love. Thank you, God, that each name on each of these cards has the person holding it as someone in their life, has someone in their life like this who loves them and cares for them and knows that they need Jesus. And Father, I pray in the coming days and weeks that you would give them the courage 
and the wisdom to somehow invite them into this gospel story, whether it's by praying for them or inviting them or showing them care and love and talking about the difference you've made in their life. I don't know how you wanna do it, but God, we pray for opportunities and we pray, God, that we'll be awake to them when they happen. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be working in the hearts of each person on each of these cards, that they may be open and receptive, that they may be willing to hear the person holding the card out. And we pray, God, that lives will be transformed because you've reminded us this day that as the church, we carry the responsibility, the hope for the future of the world. And we dare not turn our backs on that responsibility. It's in Jesus' name we pray.